Welcome to The Climate Fix. My name is Asim. On this show, we shine a spotlight on nonprofits, academics, corporations, startups, anyone working on a solution to the climate problem. On this episode, recorded on the 15th of June 2020, I spoke with Olivier Caradi, founder of Tomorrow. Olivier is a French-Danish machine learning engineer. He studied engineering at École Centrale Paris and mathematical statistics at the Technical University of Denmark. He's worked at IBM Research and Google. He's previously managed and grown a large 30-person data science and engineering team at a French AI startup called SNPs, which was later acquired by Sonos. Tomorrow builds tech that empowers people and organizations to understand and reduce the carbon footprint. I first heard of Tomorrow through their website and underlying service, Electricity Maps, which maps the greenness of electricity over time and across regions, which we discuss in depth in this podcast. Through the conversation, I realized that Electricity Maps and their other products are just examples of a much broader, bigger, and exciting mission for tomorrow, which is quite inspiring. Let's dive straight in. Hi, Olivier. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So what is the climate problem that you are solving? So we are solving, uh, we're solving uh, climate change <laughs> as a whole. So you might say that uh, if you really think about climate change, the real problem that we're having is that it should be a commodity to understand what is the footprint of decisions that we make as individuals or as organizations? Um, which is the first piece of the problem. It's a tech, technological problem. It's a data problem. That information is just not accessible. The second piece of it is that it's really challenging to know what a gram or kilogram of CO2 is because we don't have any reference point. Um, I have a reference point in monetary units because I know how much uh, a burger costs, or I know how much I'm, I'm earning as a salary, on kilograms of carbon, it starts to become a little bit challenging there. Um, and so you have to become an expert and go through all the IPCC reports and work with these things for several years because, before you actually have an understanding of some orders of magnitude of the different impact of the various things, which means that in turn it makes it very, very hard to discuss with policymakers, to engage in decision-making processes and so on. So we're trying to tackle those two parts of the challenge. So one is the tech part and the other is the design part. Um, and we've been ranging from um, data visualization and consulting activities to uh, products and really scalable solutions in order to enable organizations and individuals to understand and reduce their carbon footprint. Um, and that last sentence is actually the mission statement of the company. Oh, could you repeat that mission statement then just quickly? Exactly. So, so the mission statement of the company is to help individuals and organizations to understand and reduce their carbon footprint. And in a sense, you might say that it is very inspired by um, Google's mission statement, which is you know, to organize the world's uh, information. And we sort of um, took that and said, well, we should organize and make accessible the world's carbon information, right? And so from there on, get helping people to understand and reduce their footprint. Yeah, because without measuring something, you'll never effectively reduce it. So it sounds to me like it's both measuring and also helping people understand 
what it is that, as you said, like we know the price of a burger. And I often have that trouble as well because I talk about grams of carbon. What is a gram? How do you visualize that? I mean, unless you can, I've started to talk about it as if like, imagine holding like a kilo of ash. And I like the word ash because it makes people think a right. certain way, like ash in your hand. And then that kind of becomes visualization. Okay, so why is it worth solving, kind of measuring and explaining to people the impact of the carbon? Yeah, so, so if you really zoom out and we sort of agree on the importance of climate change, then you start looking at very, very scalable solutions. I mean, so one thing that is becoming pretty clear is that there's no silver bullet. Like, you won't save the world with just putting wind turbines up or, uh, or other things. So, and, and that is something also we can talk about a bit later. But the real challenge is we are entering this new era where we want to understand the externalities that we as human beings are causing nature. Um, so in a sense, we're moving from a world that is borderless, I mean, without any limits, where growth was fueled by the growth in energy, the growth in fossil fuels. And now we're getting, getting into a world where suddenly there's a feedback loop. We're realizing that we're chopping down trees and then forests are disappearing and then we don't have any trees left. And it's the same with fossil fuels. It's a finite uh, resource. So we must take into account those limits. The real problem is in the economic system, this has never been priced. Um, the fishes that are in the sea are free to use. The only price we pay is the fuel that we're, and, and the salary of the fishermen, you could say, right? Um, so we need to put a price on these things such that it becomes a cost of polluting and that represents the cost that nature or the, the time delay in replenishing those resources and that is, in a sense, um, trying to fix the strategy of the commons by putting a price on, on those externalities. If you want to price those things efficiently, uh, you need a global consensus on how to calculate, measure those externalities, i.e., how, how much does X emit of carbon. Um, and then once you have made sure that everyone has internalized the value of it, then you can go to politicians, vote for the right ones, and then put a carbon tax into play. But for me, the biggest blocker to a global carbon tax is really getting everyone to care about the issue and to start getting a feeling of what it represents in terms of monetary incentives. Um, and once we have this, this technology that is ready and, this, um, and this, this awareness out there, then we need to be able to make sure that everyone takes into account. And that is really where um, both open source actually and the technology aspect of things and what we do requires us to build sort of a new operating system for the future, you might say. Another great sentence, I love it. So let's move to tomorrow. So how are you solving this? How do you propose to solve this climate problem? So, so from a tech standpoint, we want to be um, a, the piece of technology that enables uh, a global consensus on what, are the, what is the footprint of stuff in general. Mm -hmm. And we want also to automate the calculation of that footprint. So, so to speak a little bit into the difficulties of that, there is two pieces. One is figure out what has happened in real life. So digitalizing the real life, figuring out that, for example, you went to um, a restaurant and you ate vegetarian or you ate a burger or it was red meat or that a company decided to uh, use some cloud servers uh, in a region where the wind didn't blow at a particular time and so on. So that's digitalizing the real world. And then once you figure out what activities are happening in the real world, then it's about figuring out what is the footprint of that activity. So for example, what's the footprint of that burger you just ate or what's the footprint of running a cloud server at a given time in a given place? Um, 
And so for the piece, which is to figure out the footprint of activities, we are taking in a full open source approach because what we've understood is that one, we're not the experts around the world on figuring those things out. There's people that are much better at us. Um, two, it's a very, very local problem. Um, beef in Denmark is not the same at all as beef in the US, for example. So we need to rely on local experts on those topics. Um, and third, if we really want this consensus to be built globally, we absolutely need to enable transparency and scalability of our activities. So we need people to be able to look under the hood and say, well, you guys are, um, here's a suggestion on how to calculate it better because this paper has been published. And if we just say, you know, it's a black box, uh, people will start questioning uh, our credibility and our, uh, I'd say, how, how, uh, how biased we are with this issue. Um, and the scalability aspects of things really comes from the fact that if we have a platform approach, where we're enabling different people to, uh, that are credible sources of information to contribute on that system, then that's just the simplest and the fastest way to get all the available information organized, structured, uh, and to get to that global consensus as quickly as possible. That's amazing, because I know tomorrow from the very specific things that you are doing, and this is the first time I've heard you talk about it from the big picture perspective, so uh, maybe let's talk a little bit about the specifics also to kind of bring it back down. But it's really wonderful to hear that the things you're doing are actually part of a much bigger vision. And now I can actually, the audience doesn't know what you do yet, but I know what you do. So it's now, <laughs> it's now interesting that way I can fit the products that you created into that vision. That's really interesting. So maybe if you don't mind, talk a little bit about the products that you have created so far that fit into your vision right now. Yeah, so four, four years ago, I, I left a previous company uh, where I was the, leading the data science team there. Uh, we did a lot of data visualization on topics that are completely different. Well, actually not that different because we worked a lot on, on visualizing um, the evolution of people's lives. So basically trying to, to quantify the activities that are, you are doing in your personal life. So for example, you're traveling, you're, you're eating at a restaurant, you're meeting up with people and so on. Um, and that got me thinking when I started to, to try to join that and, um, and the climate challenge. Um, and and that, that really, I'll, I'll talk a bit again about those things because it really um, started out, um, it really was an initiative to start out different products. But after, those four years ago when I, when I quit the previous company I was working at, I spent all my time reading everything I could on climate. And one thing that I realized was that the big solution we all have for climate change is that we want to electrify everything. So basically, most of the emissions come from our energy production. Most of our energy production is fossil fuels. It's 80% fossil fuels. So if we want to get rid of all those fossil fuels, we want to put basically renewables or low-carbon nuclear instead of that. And in the process of electrifying everything, electric planes, electric ferries, electric heating, electric whatnot, you need to understand where electricity comes from. Um, and hence started out on my own building a, a small data visualization that is now called Electricity Map, where I gathered some open data, plotted the electricity production mixes and the interconnected flows on a map just to get an idea for myself of, you know, what happens in Denmark when the wind is not blowing? Where does the electricity come from? Um, is it still green? And so on. And I put a couple of um, countries on that map. I think we had at the time only... Um, France, Sweden, and Denmark, published it as an open source project. And a couple of months later, um, it trended on Hacker News for several days where we had those, you know, uh, 
what was it, 10,000 10, unique visits, uh, visitors per hour, I think, where I had to rewrite the wow. whole code in, in a few nights. <laughs> uh, and then suddenly there was this influx of people that were so motivated by the issue and said, this is amazing, I just want to help. Let me know how I can help. And so we started creating those systems where if you knew about a country's open data accessibility, you could just um, write a small Python script, publish it on our repository, make a pull request. We would then merge it. And as soon as this was done, then that country would appear on the map. The only thing you had to do is basically just a, a small script, fetches an API and formats it in our data format. And then that was it. And I remember uh, someone from the community just telling me, this is amazing. It feels like taking a, taking a brush and just like painting over the world because I, I'm just taking all this open data and, and filling all the all those gray areas on the map with, with a real color. Um, and so this, this felt amazing. And from a, to tie it back to the mission, again, we're testing those hypotheses, which were, can we build something that becomes the consensus on how to calculate emissions from electricity in that particular case? And can we make it simple enough that anyone gets it without going into too many details? And for example, one thing that we did is the, we use a color on the map from you know, brown to green, it's pretty obvious that brown is bad and green is good. Um, the, the unit of this is in grams of CO2 equivalent per kilowatt hour, which is a mouthful. And in a sense, people get it because just it's a color. So they just say, oh, you know, the electricity is green or electricity is not green. And that's a good, uh, that's, that's a much simpler indication. Um, so we, we worked so on that for a, for a little bit of time. Um, so actually, just go ahead. I think if you have a question, we might, before I jump on, so just interrupt me. <laughs> the, what I was going to do is just going to try and paint a picture for the audience as to kind of what the map the website is. And when you land on it, it is just a map of the world. It's interactive. You can hover over a country and it will tell you, as you said, like how green it is. It will give you a number and it describes it as the carbon intensity, which I love. I use your map all the time to explain to people this concept that electricity is, well, I have to explain to them before that electricity is dirty. Then I say actually the dirtiness varies. So varies by region, but then also varies by time, which is another thing the map is a great way of demonstrating. And so that's how one of the ways I found out about tomorrow in this first place was the electricity map. And I think you just mentioned it as a Python script that you put up there. But like I've read some of your articles, I've read what you've written about how to determine where electricity comes from. It's an incredibly complex calculation, it sounds like. Like you mentioned, is it an interconnect? Like, especially, I feel that Europe is more complex. I'm not too sure. But because of the way all the different countries are connected together, the various agreements, like my electricity in the UK right now might be green, but it might be green because I'm sourcing a lot of nuclear power. From, I'm making this up. I'm sourcing a lot of nuclear power from France at this particular moment in time. Like, can you talk a little bit about the complexities of some of this stuff and how you're simplifying some of it? Yeah, so from a data perspective, it's actually a, a wonderfully fascinating topic because you're dealing with real-time uh, spatial-temporal data um, updated you know, every minute, potentially. And because it's fully interconnected in a sense that the, the physics behind the system tell you that when you import electricity, you have, of course, to know... So if, if you want to determine how green your own electricity is, the electricity that you're consuming in your power plug, uh, which is the same problem as determining the color on an electricity map, you need to understand what is the local production composed of? Is the wind getting... So are the wind turbines, turbines sorry, spinning? Are the coal power plants currently burning coal? You also need to look at the interconnectors. But as soon as you look into the interconnectors, 
and say in Denmark we're importing from Germany, you need to look at, well, so how is Germany procuring its electricity? And it's, produ- it's, it's procured locally by the local generation, but also through some interconnectors that are also importing from, let's say, France. And so it's a recursive problem, and it's potentially infinite because it, you have loop flows sometimes. You can have Denmark importing from Germany, which goes back into, uh, back into Denmark, actually, because you have two areas in Denmark. So you sometimes have loop flows. Um, but the interesting thing is that you can pose this um, problem as a conservation of energy problem, which you can then turn into a conservation of carbon. And that gives you a beautifully linear system that you can invert, which gives you the the stationary distribution of what at equilibrium is um, the carbon intensity in each areas, a little bit like you would have on a physical system where you have heating temperatures at each node of a graph, and then you have resistances in between on the edges, and you're trying to determine what is the stationary flow, the flux of, of, uh, of heat that is happening there. Those are the same type of systems you're having. Um, so so it's, it's beautifully um, complex, I would say. In a data perspective, it's complex, but mathematically, it's quite elegant. Um, and we solve this problem um, basically every time there's a new data point that comes into the system and is fed into it. And the reason why it's so fascinating in Europe is because of the interconnectivity of Europe. You have a lot of very small zones with a lot of interconnectors. Um, just in the US, you have less of that problem. In other places, you have less of that. It's, it's really thanks to the, um, to, the, to the European policy that's created this much more um, you know, integrated energy market uh, that you don't really see in other places. And what can you do? Like we talked about just visualizing, I suppose, isn't enough. Like there's a next step. Like how do you expect this data to be used to actually have an impact on carbon? What are some examples how people are using it? So there's a, we have a beautiful video actually on YouTube that showcases a time lapse of the whole electricity map where you see sort of countries blinking depending on the weather patterns. Um, and and the, the real problem that we're posing here is if we want to build a 100% renewable world with intermittent uh, technologies, then we're going to have some challenges about storage and interconnectors. We need to procure electricity at all times that is green. What do you do when the wind and doesn't blow or the sun doesn't shine? Of course, you install interconnectors and you install storage systems, but you can be more clever than that, what you could do. That's because you can install interconnectors because even though the sun might not be shining where I am right now, but it might be shining in Germany. So you have that aspect and you also have the aspect of storage in a sense where... Um, Countries like Norway, for example, have a natural storage system. Uh, it's just called their mountains. So what they do is they pump water up, up the mountain. And then, uh, so when the price is cheap, they basically import electricity and they, they, uh, they use the pumped hydro to pump water up the mountain. And then as soon as the electricity is expensive, they say, okay, now is a good time to, uh, to open the, the dams and to basically let the water flow and to recreate some, regenerate some electricity. So in that sense, if you're a neighboring country, such as Denmark, if you're neighboring to, to Norway, you're using Norway as a, as a storage system, and that's really the interconnector that helps you do that. So Norway is like the storage bank of Europe, or the Nordics at least, maybe. Uh, it, it helps Denmark a lot, let's put it that way. Um, right. okay. I'm not sure how much it helps like on, on further away, but again, this is limited by the interconnectors, you could say, right? Oh, but that's because Denmark is one of the wind leaders, I remember, isn't it, of, of Europe? So, okay, so that's a, a beautiful balancing act, because when the wind isn't blowing in Denmark, they're getting the storage from... Norway and when the wind's blowing in Denmark that means electricity is cheap and they're using it in oh that's a very interesting balance. I think Denmark is actually in a pretty unique position um, I, so I'm not sure that um, 
you would have been able to replicate the wind penetration that Denmark has had in other places necessarily. I mean, Denmark is in a very unique position because it has this very, very stable um, Norwegian system that helps them. And the same with the Swedish system, which is partly nuclear, it's nuclear and hydro, um, which helps it really a lot. If you are, if it was an island completely isolated, it would be much more complicated, of course. Um, right. So, so, so to get back to your to your original question, how is this data getting used? Um, if you look at this time lapse that showcases all those countries blinking over time, um, the the natural solution consequence of that is that you need electricity at all times that is green. So, what do you want to do? You want storage systems or interconnectors to those storage systems. One thing is simpler though and cheaper. It is to harness the flexibility of all existing consuming appliances in the world. So if I take, for example, a heating system, you won't feel cold if I turn off your heater for an hour, and especially if I preheat it, just because there's a certain thermal inertia in your building. So therefore, this electric heating has some flexibility. Why not utilize that flexibility to displace the time at which you're gonna utilize electricity? So instead of going from a world where you're consuming in a dump way and then we're making sure that the production follows the consumption, we're flipping it around and we're making sure that you consume in a smart way because we just can't decide on what time the wind is gonna blow. The wind is here, so you know you, you need to use it now. And if you, so, so what we're trying to do is to make sure that any connected device which has this flexibility and which is using a significant amount of electricity is utilizing that flexibility in order to schedule its, its um, operating hours at the best time possible. And so we create a forecast, we publish that forecast, we sell it to different customers, and then they try to adapt their, their usage patterns in order to minimize their carbon uh, load. And we've done that with several use cases. So you have the heating use case, you have the same with electric vehicles. You come, you come at home, you plug it in, um, you're only gonna use it the next day wait, why should it charge immediately? Maybe it should wait a couple of hours depending on, on, on the wind patterns. Um, and we recently announced a, a partnership where we're doing that on a global level with Google for their data centers because it turns out that a lot of the computation loads um, are flexible and those are the ones that, um, that are basically business, so all BI applications, uh, business intelligence or training um, machine learning algorithms in theory, those are things you do in batch. You run the report and the computation every every day or every week. You know, so you have some wiggle room on, on when exactly this needs to, to be finished. So you can displace the load, both in time and in space, which starts to make it super interesting because you can also say, this data, data center over there, the, the wind is blowing over there, so let's just put the job over there instead of here where the wind is not blowing. You can't do that with your electric vehicle, unfortunately. But This is really fascinating stuff. So going back to the electric vehicle, analogy. So if I've got an electric vehicle, and we spoke recently to Octopus Electric Vehicles with Natalia Silverstone, she touched on this topic as well. So if you've got an electric vehicle, we can plug it in, and then we can connect up, or if there's some service that could connect up with tomorrow's electricity map, then you could say, listen, I don't care. I need four hours to charge it. Charge it at the greenest four hours, which will mean it's going to, I'm going to get the greenest electricity. But it also, I think, importantly means you're supporting the market because if there's electricity and it's available, you want to use it if it's coming from renewables. Otherwise, it kind of burns the system in a way, right? It blacks out the system. So we use it when it's available. 
and I think I really love the fact that you're working with Google on this as well, kind of this demand shifting technology. Obviously, I'm an engineer, so this is kind of where it comes home to me. So yeah, demand shifting workloads to times and locations. Yeah, temporal and spatial, sounds like a Star Trek episode, temporal and spatial shifting of energy. So one thing that is fascinating is actually, so exactly what you said on, on when the wind is blowing, you want to utilize it because else it's, it's sort of, you said burning the system, right? And it's, that is exactly why you're seeing sometimes some negative pricing on some markets. So there's so much wind in the system that because of the ramp up and the ramp down times of all the other power plants, it's actually better to curtail, to, to, to cut, to disconnect the wind turbines from the system because we just have too much electricity. And so in some cases, the prices actually go negative, and that's an extreme case. But this just showcases that in general, when the electricity is low carbon, it's also often cheap. And this is why it's such a good business case. You want to have, um, we are helping our customers to optimize their time of use on the carbon side of things, but often it's actually also a very good business case. Um, and this is also why we're pushing on a European level at least um, to have you know, a carbon, very, very strong carbon pricing on, of, on electricity instead of having a strong taxation. Because what you currently have is a strong taxation on electricity, but the problem is this, this tax, this VAT or other taxes are constant. They do not vary depending on what is the content, the carbon content of that electricity. You already have a carbon price, so why not increase that carbon price to a very high level, remove that varying tax, and there you would really have insanely cheap electricity when it's low carbon and much more expensive at other times. And I would kickstart a whole industry of demand response, which is currently not existing. Well, quite frankly, because the business case is not there. I mean, we computed it for, for Denmark, but as a consumer, of course, if you're a Google style data center, you have a business case. But, you know, as a consumer, I looked at some point, should I hack around with some systems to make sure my my dishwasher and so on runs at the optimal time. You know, it's it's neat, but in terms of, of money, I would save maybe 50 bucks or 100 you know, euros or something like that on, on a yearly basis. So it, it's neat for me, but it's not something anyone can build a company on, unfortunately. But does that change a little bit? Because I think we're, again, talking about electric vehicles in one of the previous episodes. Once people get an electric car, their effort in understanding their electricity bills becomes much because it becomes the largest thing on your electricity bill. Absolutely. Oh, do you have customers that are electricity EV car owners? So we so we are data providers, which means that we're not directly interfacing with with you know the the users, yeah. but we are interfacing with with people who are selling services to to uh, to EV users. And I think what we generally see is that the world is moving into that direction. It's just not moving fast enough, to be honest. And, and I'm taking also the specific case of Denmark, where you have 60 to 70% of the taxes as a, as a consumer, as an individual consumer, 70% of my, the money that I pour into electricity is just a flat you know, fee that goes into the, to the government. Um, really? Absolutely. The carbon tax is a very, very small piece of that. And the, you don't have any, and the spot price, the actual price of the electricity is very small compared to the tariffs that are put and the, and the taxation on top of that. I was completely unaware that the government taxes electricity, so it becomes as a, like a, an income for the government, like the same way they used to tax, or oh, they still tax cigarettes in the UK. But that taxation, it drives the pressure down to reduce using a product, right? Whereas what you're proposing with the carbon price is to spread the gap between the cheapest and the most expensive electricity 
And then that creates more of a, a financial arbitrage, which you hope is going to drive or kickstart more innovation in the space. Does that sound right? Exactly. Absolutely. And so this, this taxation is, is into place really also to, to support renewables. I mean, this is where the money came from in order to make sure that we're building all those future technologies, which is good. But we just want to, to skew a little bit the incentives to make sure that you, you want more electrification in some pieces of you know, the, the day when it's good and not in the other times where it's bad. Amazing. I think you have another product, don't you, in your company? We have many products. We have so many products. Yeah. Is there another <laughs> one that you have that you want to talk about? So what happened when we worked with Electricity Map is we got a lot of impact, a lot of responses. Just what, it was just the first stepping stone um, into the future, you could say. The, the vision that, that we had built up over the years is that we wanted, first of all, to, to add some personal climate action into the game. Um, because with Electricity Map, it's very much on a policy level. So the natural next question was, what about the times at which I consume my electricity, the times at which I put my electric vehicle uh, to charge? And so we built this app called North, where you can connect various services, and you can connect, for example, your smart meter, and then it will tell you, here's my carbon footprint based on when I consumed electricity. And you can see exactly if you actually matched the hours where you consumed electricity with hours when it was low carbon. The interesting piece is that we're not looking only at electricity. You can start connecting other things. So, for example, you can connect um, TripIt, which is an app that automatically fetches from my emails all the bookings that I do, uh, both on hotels, but also on summer houses, trains, airplanes, whatnot. And there you start to have interesting comparisons where you can see, wait, a train trip to, you know, 100 kilometers train trip compared to the plane that I took between Paris and Kome and compared to a month of EV charging, what is that? And compared to all my groceries for a month, what does that app add up to? And so this app helps you visualize those different aspects. And again, it's built with open source in mind where all those integrations to apps that you already use are open source. So let's say that you have an app that you're using often, they have an API and you just want to fetch all the activities from that app and put it in hours, such that the carbon models calculate and visualize the footprint, you can just build it. Um, and it's also built with privacy in mind in the sense that we knew that if this app were going to know everything about your life, uh, well, there's no way we're going to do it if one, our business model is tied to your data, and if two, the data uh, is uploaded to our cloud service. So actually, we have no um, backend for this app. The only backing that we have is for uh, anonymous analytics on you know, who clicked where on the app, which you can disable, of course, from the beginning. But the data actually stays on the phone, um, which is actually a, a very big challenge in terms of debugging and so on, because we get feedback from people who tell us, you know, this thing didn't work. And we're like, yeah, but we, we, you know, we don't even know what's on your phone. So, so we had to be a bit clever in, in, uh, in how to actually build, build around this thing. Um, so this is the North app, and it's available on the App Store. And, we haven't built that many integrations so far, but it's something that is slowly growing over time um, as things move along. Um, and lately, we've been working on, on reusing all of that technology to build a product very similar to that, but which is geared towards companies. Because you can reuse exactly the same principles with the integrations, with the open source part in a SaaS, pro uh, in a SaaS product for companies. So a typical example is, if I'm so if we look at our footprint of tomorrow, we actually have spent a bit of time calculating it. 
What it boils down to is travels we're doing, cloud we're using, and maybe the energy of the buildings we're using, depending on the co-working space and so on. To gather that information, for the energy, you need a couple, you need a questionnaire, a couple of questions. For the travels, we already have this North app where I'm or automatically already have all those activities that are created. So they synchronize automatically uh, with my corporate tomorrow account. And then the last piece is, do, is the Google Cloud. I mean, we use Google Clouds. It could be Amazon, it could be Microsoft, it could be, it could be anything else. And we're just building a connector where you can connect your cloud account. And then based on you know, cross-referencing when the servers that you're using ran in a given location, and we cross-reference that with the electricity map, then you can say, look, you've used that. Here's your footprint based on your activities. And it's actually quite substantial. So if you want to, as a company, if you want to do something about it, um, a good thing is actually to start shifting your load around or to go and use data centers in regions that are greener than others. Um, and so this product is, is in beta and it's called Bloom. And we just announced it, I think, last week, just as a name. Um, so it's completely new. You get the, you get the exclusivity, I think. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds amazing. So would Bloom tell you I'm just going to go straight into the data center go. side of this equation. So would Bloom tell you, this is the carbon cost of your server loads, of your server side. Is it going to tell you how to reduce that carbon, put it that way? So will it say, like, if you've used a lot of stuff in the East Coast US, and yeah, is it going to give you advice for that? Or It's a two-step process. So we see it really as the first step is to be very, very good at visualizing, inspecting, getting the right insights of your footprint and tracking its evolution over time. Because then the next step that you ha have right after is that you're gonna come up with initiatives to do that. Um, and so on the, cloud, on the cloud side of things, we will come up with initiatives, and, and frankly, it's not the most difficult part of the problem because we have already the data that would tell us if you were to do X, if you were to run your computations in that region or at that time, here would be the footprint. That is something we'll, we'll bake into the product pretty quickly. But the first piece is really um, getting you to track your insights, be able to set some KPIs, some objectives, track them over time, and then to be able to showcase to the world um, how well you're doing. That's really the first step. I'm going to sign up to that beta. Give me access. I cannot wait to check it out. Very excited by that one. So let's talk a little bit, if you don't mind, let's talk a little bit more about tomorrow itself. Like, what's your startup? What stage are you at as a company? Yeah, it's a good it's a good question because good we question. have been no, it's a very good question because we have been a, a bit atypical as a startup. Um, we are eight people in the company right now. We for a very long time have been uh, self funded, so we bootstrapped the company uh, for the first three years. Wow. Uh, we got to approximately four people, if I remember correctly. Um, you know, on on a bootstrap level, and then we started um, we started talking to various angel investors uh, who basically were actively engaged, even politically, uh, as, at an activist level mm -hmm. in the climate mm -hmm. fight. Um, and we basically realized, okay, we, it, it would make sense to take a little bit of capital in order to, to increase our growth here. Uh, but we always try to stay out of the typical VC-style funding. And again, this goes back to, the, to our world vision in the sense that if we are in a world where there's you know, growth that is happening and accelerating all the time, then yes, it makes sure to take more money in order to get a higher valuation, in order to get even more money. But in a world where we're stagnating a bit more and slowing down, then we have to be very careful about um, 
basically raising a lot of money, hiring a lot of people, and then realizing that it was too early, um, that would really be a shame. So we are walking this fine line between raising money, getting grants, um, being scrappy, making sure that we are owning our, earning our own money to have a very good stomach feeling about what we're doing and having an impact in the world. Um, and so that's why the stage of our company is a bit tricky because we are four years old, eight people, uh, huge ambitions. Um, yeah, I, I guess that gives you a sense of where we are, I think. I mean, uh, congratulations on bootstrapping. I think bootstrapping a startup is extremely hard and bootstrapping for four years is quite a feat. So have you, sorry, just, just to be clear, have you taken investment or are you still bootstrapping? So, so we took investment uh, end of, so middle of, of last year. We've been pretty stealth about it because we didn't want to make a big fuss about it. And we didn't take that much investment, but just enough to, to start, you know, increasing a little bit the team and also to get some more experienced people to join us. Um, yeah. And, and we'll, we'll see what the future holds. So that's amazing. So you've got this really big ambition, and I love the fact you've got this much bigger than the products you've even described, this big ambition. Paint me a picture of what is the, like imagine a future where tomorrow has had the maximum impact it could possibly have. What does that future look like? What does tomorrow look like? Or how did you get there? Well, so it's, it's, that's why we call it tomorrow. <laughs> it's really what we want to, we want to build the world of the future, in a sense. Um, if, if everything goes well, um, if we, we will be in a world where those infamous externalities that I mentioned are taking into account. So as a consumer, I don't want to spend time understanding what is the footprint of stuff. I just want to make sure that when I buy something expensive, it's, 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 uh, it reflects the environmental damage it does. And if something is cheap, I don't have to wonder if it's shipped from halfway across the world. It's just, you know, it's cheap, it's good, it's expensive. Um, it takes a lot of resources to build. That's it. So if we want to get to that stage, for us, the, the vision is that we've been able to build the technology and the operating system that helps power the world of the future, the world of tomorrow. And that means that we, on a high level, have a carbon tax that is powered by the technology that we have put in place. And this is, again, why it needs to be open source, because it needs to be bigger than us. We want to be the, the stewards of that open source tech. But that really is, the open source is really the, the core piece of it. And the products we're building on top is really to raise awareness, to bring monetization to fuel our own growth, and to make sure that we have good excuses to, to build this platform and to have even more people on it. And all of the products serve that single, uh, singular purpose. I love it. So tomorrow being the driving force of the carbon price and driving that forward, I think you see that as the root of all of the solutions, right? I see that now. That's wonderful. So talk to me a bit about yourself as well now. So you touched on it very briefly at the start, kind of your journey into creating tomorrow, kind of the technical journey. Like, why did you even have the idea in the first place? Why are you interested in this area? So, so I have a background in, so I'm half French and half Danish, and I've studied a little bit in, in both countries. And in, in uh, France, I studied general engineering. And in Denmark, I studied mathematics and, and statistics um, before it was actually called machine learning. And when mm -hmm. I, I worked a lot on the integration of fluctuating renewables onto the grid, um, I wrote my thesis in 2011 on a fascinating topic where we tried to basically determine what is the optimal price of electricity that you should give consumers such that if they have enough flexibility because they buy some smart appliances, they can shift the load around. Uh, so what's the optimal price you need to give in order to make sure that all the surplus electricity is absorbed or to make sure that when there's 
no intermittent renewable, then you make sure that people stop consuming at that time uh, without you know, ruining everyone because the price sort of fluctuates and it goes spikes a lot. Um, so that's a little bit the world that I come from, control theory, um, predictive, uh, predictive algorithms and statistics. I went into IBM research and, and in Zurich where I worked a little bit on those topics. Um, the research world was too slow for me. I really wanted to have an impact and I had this, I wanted really to be, to, to build some things myself that had a lot of impact. I didn't necessarily think I would start a company, but I just thought I need to build things myself. Um, and this is also why I joined Google after that, where I worked on topics that are completely different. Um, but that gave me a sneak peek into how the big guys do it and do it well. Um, and then I went into a startup where I was lucky enough to be part of a very fast uh, growth story where I was the first employee there and we hired 30 to 35 people in the next two years, uh, exclusively, almost exclusively on data science. Um, and, and that experience was also very, very good. But, but after those two years and that experience, I really felt like I was getting too much away and too much disconnected from the, from the pressing issues of the world. I felt a little bit as if I was in an echo chamber um, of Silicon Valley where I just needed to make technology that makes our life easier. And I was like, wait, my life isn't that hard. Like I don't need to you know, have so much intelligence in all the devices that I use. Uh, what are the things that really matter and, and that's where I came back to climate change. And as, when you start looking at the numbers there, you really, well, it's another way to put it is don't be alone when you look at these things because the amount of depressing information is just staggering and it might be hard to keep a cold face um, and, and to continue looking at the facts um, and continue working on this thing in the face of, 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 uh, of all the bad news that are happening around the world. Um, so... I decided that it was worth dedicating my life to this. I also wasn't afraid that it wouldn't work because I knew that this problem was so big that just building technology around this area would become useful in one way or another. Um, and, and it turned out to be true. And I think we're only seeing the, you know, it's the tip of the iceberg that we're still seeing. I think there's a lot more resources that are gonna be put into this and that need to be put into this. That's a great point. I think I love what you said. Don't be alone when you are researching this. I think one of the two problems people have is that it's really hard to constantly hear the news about this stuff. So people, and I count myself as one of these people for years, would just bury my head in the sand and I didn't really want to, to hear about all the bad news. One advice I do, I'm going to give a bit of a plug here. Well, some advice that was given to me when I first kind of really started accepting what was going on and kind of looking into it was like join climateaction.tech, which yes. is an online community. And uh, I'm now one of the co-organizers of there, but like wherever you are in the world, if you just want to meet like-minded people, it's all tech workers, not just all engineers. Anybody who works in tech space, you're welcome. And I just find like a collection of people who are all on this journey together and supporting each other. Cause you're right, you, you do need some help and support, which kind of moves me on to, I think the next question, I'd, lo I'd love to ask everybody this question. You've been doing this for quite a while and intended tomorrow you've been working on this for four years. And let me just say again, bootstrapping is hard. And there must have been some really low points during that period, I can guess. <laughs> what are some ways you've kept motivated over that time? And what's your advice for others for how to stay motivated? Because the climate space is a tough space to be in. Oh, absolutely. I've had, uh, I've had tons of, of points in, in, in the history of tomorrow where people told me face to face, you are absolutely crazy. You are never going to make a single 
dollar out of this. Even, I mean, you know, mentors, someone, some people that I really looked up uh, to in the industry that told me, I mean, you're just wasting your time and you even know how to, to do some pretty cool things technically. Why are you just so stubborn in doing this? Mm-hmm. Um, and you have some points where you get back home and you're like, fuck, this is, this is horrible. Like, I'm, it's, it's never going to work. Um, but I think after a while when, and this is the piece where you shouldn't be alone, <laughs> to be mm-hmm. very clear. Yeah. But I think for me, the, the, the size of the opportunity and the challenge always kept me going. This red thread, which is going back to fundamentals about what is climate change? How big is the problem? Uh, hence actually why I published this guide, pragmatic guide to climate change that you have on our website to try to condense all of this knowledge. And I would just reread it sometimes where I was down and be like, wait, this is so big of a problem. There's absolutely no way it's useless to do. Take a break, do something else, do some sports, come back to it fresh. Um, but I think the, the very hard part is to go from that very, very big abstract space of the problem and then going back to a level where you are, how am I going to survive on this? Very specifically, how am I going to build a team? How am I going to how am I going to earn enough money to make it work? And this is where, I think this is the biggest challenge I've had for the past four years is to figure out once you have a product, how do you make sure that you sell it well and that you monetize it well? Um, and, and there's no silver bullet here. I also think that timing is super important. Sometimes you just got to be patient. Um, the fact that Greta Thunberg came and created all this awareness in the past you know, one to two years has completely accelerated everything we were doing. I remember four years ago when we were discussing with big, uh, you know, EV companies that I'm not going to mention, or big corps, and they were like, you know what, it's it's cute, but uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Whereas now you, you have a lot of awareness in the world, which suddenly means that companies are starting to care about this because everyone starts to care. Mm. Um, and so I guess you just got to be patient and equip yourself with a bit of patience on, on those um, when this happens. Yeah. But I empathize with everyone who's struggling. So, you know, uh, um, yeah, join Slack, um, be with some mi- like-minded people and, and yell a bit sometimes, it helps. <laughs> Great advice. So just the last question, if there's anything inspirational, something you've read recently, a personal listener should follow, or, or sometimes I just have these thoughts in the day and I'm like, I just want to share a thought. Just something you want to share with the audience or just want to leave with the audience before we finish. Ah, you're challenging me. That's a, that's a very good question. <laughs> oh, there's so many things. Uh, it's, 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 it's hard to actually pick one. I mean, we are, we are in a... So I, I will pick one. Um, and there's, there's one line that resonated so strongly with me. Um, a quote from, from Greta Thunberg, actually. at a, I think she gave a talk at the, uh, in France at last year, I think. Um, and, and she said the, the real problem is that is when we're making it seem like real action is happening, whereas the only thing that is really happening is uh, clever accounting and creative PR. I think that's what she said. And this is something that is fundamentally a big driver in what I personally do, is to fight the bullshit, to be honest. Um, and I think we live in a world where information is getting incredibly challenged. The, the, the value of data is getting challenged. We see everything that we see in the US going on currently also shows that you know, facts are getting diminished. And we're trying to do exactly the opposite, to bring some facts to this game, which is currently just a, a fight between slogans. 
Um, and I think that she put the words extremely well on on a whole, you know, feeling that a, a feeling that a whole generation shares. And for me, this is extremely exp- inspirational to feel like, well, I'm not the only one thinking about that, and she's expressing it very well. Awesome, yeah, great. I think because somebody's worked in the startup space as well, myself is like, you can't survive bullshitting yourself about your product and your customers. So you have to build stuff that's real, that has a, a real impact, and then you'll be successful. So yeah, like, great last thought. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for your time, Olivia. It's been really, really fascinating. I've been looking forward to having our chat for a while and I'm really glad that we've had it. It's been really informational and inspiring. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me. You've been listening to Asim Hussain on The Climate Fix. If you like what you heard, please hit subscribe on your favorite podcast application. It really does help. Information about this episode, including all the links that we mentioned, can be found on our website, theclimatefix.com. If you want to message me, you can find me on Twitter as jawache, or you can email me at hello at theclimatefix.com. If you want each new episode neatly packaged together with the show notes and sent to your inbox weekly, then subscribe to our newsletter, which you can again find on theclimatefix.com. Till next time.